You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. One of the things, one of the questions that we've gotten, some feedback we've received here over the past couple of years is is folks asking us to share a little bit about our experiences, our career paths. Uh, I guess a lot of you out there listening are sort of interested in this field of, of wildlife conservation, waterfowl, migratory bird conservation, and kind of wondering what are those opportunities and, and kind of how do people in this that are currently in this field, how did how did we get there? You know, what did our path and what kind of advice can we provide to y'all? And we have an opportunity today to visit with, with a person who has a 38 plus year career in this space. He's here in studio with us. He's been on earlier episodes uh, talking about the Harvest Information Program. Our guest today is Brad Bortner. Most recently, he retired as the chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we're going to cover a lot more about his career, and, and he's going to share stuff with, with us and with you about uh, the, his experiences and, and his paths and opportunities. Brad, welcome. 
Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back. It's great to have you here in studio with us. You're in Memphis visiting with Dr. Karen Waldrop and I think a few other people. And Jessica Tyler, too. Jessica Tyler on some of the other projects that you've got going now. You are retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but you're currently working on uh, as coordinator of a harvest information program project, improvement project, and you might touch on that a little bit as we get into this. But that was that was the top, the, the main focus of those earlier episodes. I want to say they were episodes 124 and 125. I looked at that the other day. So folks can go back and, and look at that and get sort of an education on the Harvest Information Program from Brad and the work that he's been doing now. I thought this would just be a great opportunity to get you in studio, talk one-on-one about your incredibly successful career. You ascended to pretty high levels within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, certainly as it relates to waterfowl management, migratory bird management. And so you're going to have some um, great insight and experiences to share. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, you're pretty gracious for saying a highly successful career, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I did have a, a, a very rewarding career from my perspective. And I went places that I never thought as a kid that uh, I would ever um, dream of going or nor did I ever really aspire to go to those levels. But um, when the time came, it was my turn um, to, to step up and, and take a leadership role. So I did end up in, in D.C. doing a lot of things that uh, I would have never uh, imagined I would have done as a, as a entry-level biologist. Tell us about a young Brad Bortner, where you came from, what were your hobbies, what led you to uh, an eventual career in, in wildlife conservation? It's a long story. I'm uh, my I'm the son of a of career Navy officer. My father was a captain in the Navy. Um, he had a unique story in that he started off um, in World War II um, as an enlisted man, and he worked his way up uh, at, through a career. Switched over, you know, what they call a Mustang. Switched over to an officer and went up through the the ranks. So, born in Massachusetts, moved to Florida, moved to Guam, moved to California, you know, lived all over, ended up in high school years um, in Annapolis, Maryland, when my father was the chairman of the electrical engineering department at the Naval Academy. I went to school on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, watching flocks of swans and canvasbacks. Uh, I can remember stopping on the athletic field in the middle of practice one day when I saw my first bald eagle fly over. Oh, wow. And uh, and so, having that kind of exposure um, to the Chesa- speak. Uh, one of my best friends uh, or my best friend in high school uh, lived on the shores, on a farm on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, my father wasn't a hunter, but my friend's family uh, hunted and they invited me to go. And, you know, Mr. Rich uh, was uh, one of um, one of those role models for me uh, took me out um, duck hunting, goose hunting, dove hunting, and I, I, I loved it. Um, and I think I told you before, in, you know, in 10th grade, I was walking across campus one day and I looked in a friend's um, Jeep and sitting on the front seat was a book that said, you know, Careers in Environmental Studies or something like that. And you know, I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to need to do something when I graduate. <laughs> and, I, you know, what do I really love? I think I'd like to be a waterfowl biologist. I think I'd actually want to be a refuge manager. Yeah. And uh, I started putting things together. Uh, in high school, we had a kind of a senior project. I, as a senior project, I ended up volunteering with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and also Larry Heinemann, um, the Maryland Parks and Wildlife, and banded Canada geese and uh, and ducks with, with Larry and went off to, to school to be a, a wildlife biologist, went to the University of Vermont. My major advisor there, Dave Capen, suggested at one point 
Um, two, you, there's this research station up in Manitoba, and you ought to look into it. It was the Delta Waterfowl Research Station. And um, wrote a letter up to somebody who um, had a long career here with Ducks Unlimited after Bruce Batt. Mm-hmm. And Bruce uh, accepted me as a Macmillan. Uh, Macmillan. They were starting a new project on, on, on marsh ecology, and I was kind of interested in habitat aspects. And... Bruce uh, invited me up to be a Macmillan Fellow for the first summer of that project, working with um, guys who had long careers with Ducks Unlimited and, you know, um, DU Canada, uh, Henry Merkin and and others. And and I was exposed to a whole bunch of folks um, that I've worked with throughout my career, Um, you know, Dr. Al Afton, who you you know, Dr. Frank Rohr, who you know quite well, um, um, and a number of others, uh, Jeff Nelson uh, and uh, Ray Alasoskis, and just was fascinated by all the um, different people f- focusing on waterfowl biology. And it really, ins- I found it inspirational and went on to graduate school, started off at Johns Hopkins. I wanted to work on swans because of my early exposure to swans and spent a year at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and Hygiene, uh, studying with an ecologist there. And then finally uh, transferred to the University of Maryland uh, when I got a um, a grant from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to study the um, food habits and and um, habitat use of tundra swans and madame mesquite. My real interests were in the bioenergetics and looking to see how they were acquiring uh, food energy on the on the landscape and and then utilizing it over the course of the winter. Um, in a nutshell, that's how that's how I got you know got into it. I've been very fortunate in the course of my career to have meet the right people at the right time. And then, and sometimes uh, you just have to, there's a dream out there, there's a, an opportunity and you have to be bold enough to grab that opportunity. Um, whether it was going out and doing something with a graduate student and, you know, they're saying, gee, there, you know, there's um, a project going on or a fellowship opportunity, a scholarship opportunity, or even, um, um, you know, push yourself into when there's different jobs out there that you're not quite sure you want, but it seems like it would be an interesting thing to do. It was, so would that be your number one advice to people that are thinking about this? Young, let's say they're maybe even in maybe even in high school, but also early college. People are thinking about a career in this in this field. Would your number one advice be them to somehow, some way? make a connection with someone that's doing this kind of work and see if there are opportunities to volunteer or to work as a summer technician? Like, what's that number one piece of advice for for someone who's thinking about this to kind of take that first step? Uh, I would always say build your network. I mentioned a bunch of names uh, of folks. Whenever you can, you know, introduce yourself to somebody, um, get to get to know them, get to understand them, get to find out what they're working on. If there's an opportunity to volunteer, or or maybe they have maybe have a, um, a a paying position as a technician or something like that. It's a it's be bold. Take take that opportunity um, and follow up on conversations. Uh, I've always told my sons when I was growing up is build your network and. Um, and make sure make sure that um, uh, you follow up on some of those uh, some of those connections. And and if something sounds like um, it was something you want to do, explore it. Um, you know, if even if even if you don't have a great opportunity, um, a great experience, you'll learn something, and that'll help you go in the other direction. Yeah, that's right. I remember the the first person in my professional network, and it was a very significant person. When you hear this name, you probably know who it is. That I 
sought out at Mississippi State. I knew I wanted to to work in this field. And somewhere along the way, as I was as I was transitioning to Mississippi State, I something clicked with me for waterfowl and, and wetlands. I'd always been interested in it, but it's like I thought to myself, that's what I want to try to focus on. And of course, there just so happened to be a professor at Mississippi State at that time who studied waterfowl, Dr. Rick Kaminsky. And so, you know, your your statement about being bold, just sometimes it, it's not necessarily, you know, it, it's not outrageously bold, but it is sort of making a decision on your own accord to pursue something. And in this case, I went to Rick and asked him if I could switch advisors because you automatically assigned an advisor whenever you enroll as a new student. Or at least that's typically what happens. But And I was assigned to a different advisor and I knew Rick studied waterfowl and, and I asked him if he would be, if I could switch to have him as my advisor. And of course, he said, yes, but you have to go talk with your other advisor first and explain to him why you want to make this change and, and so forth. And And that was a very significant connection for me you know that was with Rick as the the person that brought me into the into the waterfowl space the the rest is there's there's a lot more to that story but that was but that was kind of the pivotal moment for me and I think there are pivotal moments for most people and you just kind of have to identify yours and find yours and it sounds like you kind of did the same thing and traveling taking a you know I grew up in Mississippi and I never really traveled a lot and so I took a big step by going to Canada one summer worked for Delta Waterfowl as well and then I went to California and worked there and um, you did this. You, you had moved around a lot, so the traveling for you wasn't as big of an issue, right? No, the traveling traveling was uh, not that big of an issue. I did want to explore and go and, and see other parts of the country and see um, uh, different habitats. Uh, like I said, I was kind of always been interested in um, in the habitat side of things. Um, you know, I picked up a forestry degree along the way also because I was kind of interested in, in the more of the management aspects than the population side of, uh, and then I ended up working as a population ecologist. But um, yeah, I w- went to Manitoba and enjoyed that. I had spent the summer before that working in Wyoming uh, for the Bureau of Land Management. And you know, again, just one of those things, there was an opportunity and said, let's go try something new. So on the traveling, this is, we're going to kind of go in a different direction here on the traveling side of things. In, in your life through through all the different phases of it, and certainly in your career within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you've traveled to a lot of places and seen a lot of waterfowl habitats, a lot of ecosystems, ecoregions that are important to waterfowl. Which which one do you think back on and are you most thankful for, which one was most fascinating or are you most thankful to have visited? Like which one of those, is there one that stands out more than the others? Not saying more important for waterfowl necessarily, but for you and the experience you had. Boy, that's a hard question. The, I mean, the Delta the Delta Marsh was obviously something new and different, and, and getting to Prairie Pothole Country mm-hmm. and roadside ditches when they're wet and full of green um, blue wing teal. Um, and I love I love the um, prairie um, ecosystem, um, big wide open stuff. But the Intermountain West wetlands, um, and then I, you know, you're not going to be able to give me a single. I, one, I can't, you know, the I've, <laughs> fr- from I wouldn't uh, be from, able from to a, either. From a new, unique standpoint, you know, even though I had done my graduate work in coastal North Carolina um, and had seen cypress trees and everything else, um, coming down and I, I hunted in, uh, 
Wax Lake uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the Atchafalaya yeah. Basin with Fred Rutker in 1990 or so, and it was completely different. And seeing the diversity of waterfowl at that that was present there at that point in time, um, and seeing the cypress um, swamp. Um, completely something new and different for me. But then, you know, seeing <laughs> seeing uh, waterfowl habitats in Scotland and and Japan and 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 Russia, um, they're all you know. It's kind of hard to pick one yeah. that uh, that stands out. Uh, they're all kind of unique in their own way. So your your research was on tundra swans. We're now going back to kind of your graduate mm-hmm. school days, and you've been around research, aware of research all throughout your career in one way or another. You may not be out there conducting the research, but you're helping to provide some of the funding to support research and things of that nature. How much has it changed? Like, is as you as you think back to the way, whether it be methods, topics, what have been some of the biggest changes, more notable, memorable changes that you've seen in terms of the research side of things over the years? Well, um, certainly technology has changed dramatically. Uh, I can remember uh, as an undergraduate, I put, uh, I helped uh, the University of Vermont put, um, and the Vermont Department of uh, Wildlife put radio transmitters on wild turkeys. And they literally had a C-cell battery um, on the back of them. And these, you know, big clunky things that went around the neck of the bird. Um, My first advisor there at Johns Hopkins had put some of the first radio transmitters on on migrating swans and, and they weighed probably more than a green wing teal um, you know and they followed those birds by airplane um, you know f- because of the radio technology from from Alaska to the Chesapeake Bay you know 5,000 kilometers yeah um, but you know it was huge uh, the technology change has been just amazing and then I thought I was trying to keep up and I was talking to someone here recently about um, uh, the uh, GSM technologies, and they said, "Well, we're onto LTE and everything else now." And I mean, yeah. these, it, birds are calling in from all over the place, so it's it's just been amazing. Some of the work with that is being done now in waterfowl, but we I worked on previously with seabirds in the Pacific with those um, little light capturing uh, diodes that you can tell you basically where birds are are um, spending their time just by uh, patterns of light and dark. Likewise, going along with that, uh, the funding. <laughs> funding levels have just gotten uh, uh, gotten crazy. Um, I can remember twenty or thirty thousand dollar project was um, you know big time project yeah. at, um, in the in the early nineteen eighties, and now um, that wouldn't even pay for um, you no. know uh, one semester of a uh, graduate student stipend probably. But yeah, that's um, right. So things have, things have changed a lot. Um, from an intellectual standpoint, I think some of the questions may be better. Um, the hypothesis testing, uh, probably a little more formal than it was. Um, but the intellectual curiosity remains the same. I mean, people are still trying to peel back layers of the onion and understand the critters and what they're doing out there. So I want to I kind of skip forward here in your career. You, you got to start as an ecologist with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Then after that, you went to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And there may have been some other stops along the way. We'll kind of touch the high points here, though. Uh, and you eventually became the chief of the population assessment section and then went on to be like an acting assistant regional director. Uh, looks like for external affairs for the Pacific region of the Fish and Wildlife Service and then a few other things. Actually, one here that's, that's kind of, I think, uh, notable chief of the Division of Migratory Bird and Habitat Programs in the Pacific region as well. And those positions within the Fish and Wildlife Service allowed you to 
see and and make decisions that affect a lot of the monitoring efforts of the Fish and Wildlife Service relative to migratory birds, uh, the management and decision-making of, of, of migratory birds. And so as we were talking, I asked you about research and how it's changed. There are also certain core principles that go along with migratory bird management from a, from a principle standpoint that haven't changed much, and that is the importance of data and monitoring to inform decision-making. One of the things that you saw a lot of, I know, saw growth of is more data-based decision-making. That had to have been I mean, that you were right there in the midst of adaptive harvest management, which became a, at least, you know, in terms of your career, where it became a highly informed decision process, uh, USGS, uh, sister organization or bureau uh, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has invested heavily in, in structured decision-making and informed management. How big, how big did that become as a, as a leader and decision-maker in the Fish and Wildlife Service? How much did that kind of change the framework of some of those decisions and maybe even your ability to be more confident in them. Any Anything to well, offer it's, there? It's been huge. Um, as you mentioned, um, you know, I was around in 19, in the bird office in 1988 when uh, it was a drought on the prairies. Things were bad. We'd gone through um, the 1985 drought. Um, in 1988, the um, seasons were restricted again, down to a three-bird bag limit in the Atlantic Flyway, 30-day season. Um, you know, same sorts of thing in the Mississippi Central and the Pacific Flyway. It was time of great acrimony. Um, and uh, a lot of hostility um, between managers at the, at the federal and state level in, in the flyway system. Uh, a lot of concern out there. Um, I can remember going to, we used to have public meetings at that point in time and having people testify, people from the waterfowl management testify, waterfowl management community testify that we should close the duck season um, in 1988. Um, and um, I won't mention, I won't mention names, uh, but, you know, it was, Pretty startling, and and then we um, we worked on a an environmental impact statement that talked about having stabilized regulations, um, and uh, out of that, um, Fred Johnson, who you know, and and myself and and some others started talking. Uh, the, the flyway reps, uh, Jerry Suri, Ken Gamble, um, uh, Jim Bartnick, um, and Dave Sharp uh, started. We started talking about. Um, ways to, you know, implement that. And um, w what happened is Fred, you know, was reading some of the fisheries management um, literature and and um, stumbled upon this concept of adaptive resource management. And we started talking about how to explore that and how to uh, broach it with the flyways. And, and we ended up developing what it became AHM. There's a long ways of saying that we, um, you know, we came up with this system and it has, um, it's had good parts and bad parts. And uh, the good part is, is it's taken a lot of that acrimony out of, out of uh, the system. As a, as a little anecdote, um, I once had the opportunity to talk to Lynn Greenwald, uh, who was a former Fish and Wildlife Service director during the late uh, 70s, early 80s, and Dan Ash, who was the director um, in the um, in Obama administration. And I asked them both the same question is, you know, Lynn, how much of your time did, when you were a director of the Fish and Wildlife 
service did you spend on duck regulations? And he said, oh, oh probably a quarter to a third of my time. Mm. Wow. And I asked Dan Ash the same question, and he said less than 1% of his time. Wow. And not all of that is due to to you know AHM and everything else. A lot of it, a lot of other resource issues are demanding more time from the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service. But um, I also use that as an example of how we have uh, quieted the waters to some extent, maybe too too far because um, some people. And just assume, okay, you know, duck regulations don't matter and the process doesn't matter. And, yeah. and it'll just, it's a little black box and it'll crank out a number and we may have lost some attention and some and priority in people's minds. So that might be the, the con for, for the pros, but I think that the, that the pro... The pros for adaptive harvest management and the um, introduction of structured decision-making and, you know, um, very clear uh, guidelines for when to select which season um, has been a major advance in waterfowl management in the course of my career. Brad, we're going to take a break right now. We will come back and we'll talk a little bit more about your career. But in, as part of that, I want to ask you some questions about some more memorable experiences, some of the larger challenges what were the what were some examples of the things that really tested your your resolve as a as, as a level-headed guy you know being in in those positions especially once you got to the chief overall chief of the division of migratory bird management uh, what are some of the more more challenging issues that you had to work with and, and maybe a few other fun things in there so stay with us brad we'll be right back You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Brad Bortner, uh, retired most recently as the chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management of the Fish and Wildlife Service. He's here in studio with us, and we're just kind of doing a bit of a recap of his career and some stories and and advice from him and uh, some of the things that he was able to to be part of. I have your resume here in, in front of me, a little short. I, I don't even know if this qualifies as a resume. You've actually gone You've condensed it to, to four pages. Is that, that technically a resume? Or maybe it's just a more condensed version of your high-level accomplishments in your career. Regardless, I appreciate it because it makes it easy easy to sort through. One of the things I have to ask you first here, it says education, credentials, and significant training. There's one on here that I, that I didn't expect. A master 50-ton vessel, inland waters, U.S. Coast Guard, 2013 to present. You got to tell me about that. Well, I grew up on the water, and I decided I wanted to get a Coast Guard captain's license. And so, um, on long weekends in Washington, D.C., I went out to Annapolis School of Seamanship and uh, took the training. I had I had all the boat experience that I needed in order to get a captain's license. And I just thought, well, gee, I might as well, you know, learn some of the more technical aspects of navigation and, and everything else. And I went and got my uh my captain's license. I, there's probably other things I could put on that resume that you would find interesting too. I, I've climbed all of the um, major volcanoes in in Western North America. No kidding. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm a member of a climbing a mountain climbing club in the Pacific Northwest, and I've taken all of their climbing classes from basic climbing to high altitude, um, you know, steep. Uh, ice and snow. So just have a lot of interest, Mike. And that's just one of those things that's, that's in there. That's pretty cool. I had no idea. Now, do you do you exercise that um, that skill as, as Prim- sort, of, pr- sort of a primarily captain? Primarily by chartering um, motorboats and, and taking tours around um, the Salish Sea, Puget Sound. Um, I've sailed, um, you know, or cruised all the way up um, through Sitka, Alaska, Juneau. And, You're doing uh, that kind of th- stuff now those things yeah, now just um mainly family and friends yeah you know, it's just you know charter a, a 50-ton boat or you know a relatively big yacht and and go cruise around and the the rental companies and the insurance companies find it um comforting i think that i'm driving their million dollar boat and i have some sort of credentials that uh you know not just uh you know it's just one of those things but you know most of your duck guides out there also have um if they're taking paying customers have to have what's called a, a six-pack license which is essentially mm-hmm. the same um the same license but i've upgraded it a little bit better to a little bit bigger boats not too many 50-ton duck boats yeah yeah, I wouldn't think so. I don't. I, although some can probably get close, elaborate portable blinds, right? No, not just. If this just retirement gig doesn't work out for me, I can I can drive a water taxi somewhere. That's right. That's right. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, and and your climbing interest and skill had no idea of that either. What's uh, any recent uh, outings? No, I, um, actually. Um, with one of my previous, when I got to one of my previous um, lab Labradors, I ended up spending so much time tri- uh, training and you know hunt tests and that sort of thing that um, it kind of ate into my climbing season. And then when I got into DC, there just wasn't any oh. time to do that kind of thing. And so it's been a while. It's been a while, okay. and, and I'm not nearly in the shape that I need to be to yeah. to go to twelve thousand or fourteen thousand feet. So. Yeah, if you have a chance today, you should visit with uh, our chief brand officer Doug Barnes. He was a big climber in the day. I don't think he's doing much of that anymore. 
for either. Yeah. So, but uh, do you know Doug? Uh, I I do. I've met him, um, and actually, I have a meeting scheduled up right, oh, okay. uh, right after this. Did you know he was a climber? No, I did not. Yeah, yeah. He used to be anyway. I don't think he does a lot of that anymore, as, as I was saying. So, from a from a career standpoint, as you look back look back across it, and as I said, you've culminated your career as chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management. And what all does that cover? You know, you don't have to go into great detail, but what does that person do? Well, when I was, it's changed um, since I retired, but when I was, um, uh, when I was chief, I, I was basically in charge of um, all of the migratory bird personnel um, out of, stationed out of headquarters, which is our pilots, um, our um research scientists or, or um, population ecologists that do all the assessment work, um, our regulations development um, staff, communi- um, some communications. So we were involved in, in all sorts of, um, you know, a- collecting data, analyzing data, and making recommendations on, on regulations, um, not only hunting regulations, but other management regulations like, um, you know, black vultures and double-crested cormorants and that sort of thing. And then that would go into the um, regulatory process. We also, during my tenure, developed a raptor group and um, we're looking at um, raptor conservation and management with the focus on renewable energy development. We spent a lot of time on coming up with regulations for um, the incidental take of uh, golden eagles and bald eagles and a whole bunch of other things. Um, We... um, during my tenure, uh, celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Migratory Bird Treaty um, with Canada, um, you know, was involved in uh, of participating in or leading the the, um, uh, the discussions that we have with Russia and, and Japan and, and Mexico and, and uh, Canada on Migratory Bird Treaty Act or the Migratory Bird Treaties and making sure that um, we're meeting our obligations under the treaties and having discussions of conservation uh, issues. So it's soup to nuts, everything on migratory birds, also the national program leader to uh, to the point of, you know, allocating out the national budget to the regions, um, to to the division, um, trying to make sure that we're meeting the the priorities of the service and the administration um, in accomplishing migratory bird conservation and management. The setting of waterfowl harvest regulations that falls under uh, under that position, right? Yeah. um, Now, on that part, I want to be clear that what the chief does there and the division is we make we analyze the data, we make recommendations to the to the service directorate and also to the flyways. And then when the recommendations come in from the flyways, we evaluate those and make recommendations to what's called the service regulations committee, which is a, a group of um, of high-level decision makers um, appointed by the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service who evaluates that, uh, takes into account um, what they know about um, what's going on in their regions, and they they make a recommendation to the director. The, di- the division chief is kind of the chief science arbiter, um, a chief science advisor um, on those recommendations and either recommends that you know, the service adopt those or they don't adopt them. And sometimes the director decides to um, adopt um, what the flyways recommend over top of 
what the um, professional staff says. Um, sometimes they agree with the professional staff. So, I wasn't making the ultimate decision on the uh, on the on the harvest regulations. The director and the assistant secretary for Department of Interior make those. But the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey that uh, we're sitting here in in mid May and and it's if it hasn't started already it. It, it should it, be. It should be soon. It's kind of a late spring, I know. But that was all under the supervision of you and your staff, yep, right? I ran a small airline. Um, yeah. You know, and it was yeah, that actually, was another thing in your resume that I was that I noticed. You know, your what was it? You managed a thirty million dollar aircraft fleet, I believe, is the way you have it written up here. Uh, yeah. Um, of you know, we have at various times, you know, about a dozen pilots and and and. Aircraft. Um, one of the challenges um, when I was chief was operationalizing the new Kodiak aircraft and bringing it into the fleet. Um, it worked closely with um, Mark Conniff and, and his staff. Uh, wanted to make sure that we were uh, being safe and that we could conduct those surveys. Um, I mean, safety is a huge aspect of that program. Um, anytime we put you know, planes in the air, we want to make sure that the that the aircraft is safe um, uh, for people. Uh, both in the air and also on the ground. And um, we had a whole fleet of new aircraft and we were trying to make sure that we could operate them safely and conduct the surveys um, and get the data that we needed. I've heard people refer refer to those the, the implementation, the utilization of those new aircraft as a pretty significant moment, but I don't, I'm not... I'm not aware enough of aviation and, and the capabilities of these different aircraft to know why that was so significant. What was the what was the big advantage of having those new aircraft other than just they're new and more I mean maybe well, more they, reliable? What was the big difference? They they're much more reliable. Um, also, the issue that we had in recognizing that we're flying forty four thousand miles of of uh, transect every year in some places in very remote you know you, you're spent the weekend with Fred. So, you know, you know about flying in the bush um, up in northern Canada, and there'd be a long ways between uh, fuel stops. And sometimes, um, you know, our aircraft safety folks were concerned that the planes were over gross uh, weight. They were flying uh, heavy previous um, when we were flying, you know, smaller airplanes. So, we had the the opportunity um, way back in uh, some of the economic... um, uh, stimulate, stimulation days, um, 2009, to uh, to replace those aircraft with Kodiaks, um, and they were they're a high performance airplane with a with a turbine engine, much more reliable engine than a piston engine. When you're flying in the bush at 100 feet, 100 knots, um, you want to make sure that you um, your airplane is reliable. Um, so they were a bigger airplane. They had um, you know uh, floats that that were bigger and, and Drafted deeper than the than the previous um, floats on on smaller aircraft, so we had to op- modify operations and on some of the water bodies that we were uh, were operating on uh, a glass co- cockpit. So all of the screens were you know computer monitors basically, mm-hmm. as opposed to gauges. and And then we had an exhaust system and propellers and fueling systems that we had to um, figure out how to how to fix. And so I was always looking, going through my budget, trying to figure out where I could save money and this place and that place and invest it in, in making some modifications to these otherwise essentially brand new aircraft. And I believe that the pilot corps appreciated the efforts and I know that the safety folks did. One of the issues was is in order to fuel those planes when they're on when on floats, pilot have to crawl up on the top of the airplane on top of the wing and fuel. And you're 
15 feet off the ground at that point in time, at least, and that wasn't a safe place to have people. So we had to develop a, a fueling system where they didn't have to climb um, all the way up to the top of the aircraft to, to fuel it. So All these different considerations and decisions all around data collection for the management of, migratory, of waterfowl in this, in case, and I know you use those aircraft for other other purposes as well, but, you know, for our audience, their their role and in, in, in helping us understand, keep track of waterfowl populations, it's just, people, we just don't think about that. It, um, yeah, I mean, for collecting, collecting that information, it is a, a huge task and it's a huge operation. And uh, I literally, uh, I jokingly say it was uh, running a small airline, but it was. Yeah. And, and it was something that was very difficult to make sure that we uh, maintained our, you know, almost spotless safety record, made sure that the Everybody we were putting up in those airplanes was safe, uh, had the proper training, and they were, um, re- you know, they were current in the operations. They had all the qualifications. They passed all their check rides. There, um, you know, you know, Mark, um, you know, Mark has a full time job just keeping that going. And then yeah. he used to need to come to me and and say, Brad, I need to find some money to do this, and I had to work with him to uh, to make sure that we could do that. Brad, we're very quickly running out of time here in our allotted schedule. So I want to touch on, I want to kind of talk about a couple of things, want to give reference to a couple of things. One, the person that's in the per- person that's in the job like now that you used to have, Dr. Ken Richkus. And we've had Ken on before. He's a great friend of both of ours, and he'll probably join us for some future uh, episodes and discussions. But I just wanted to kind of connect connect like some of the things that you're talking about with the, the person, the good friend, the one who grew up passionate and remains passionate about waterfowl, waterfowl hunting, and is trying to make all of these decisions to the best that 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 they can he can in given all the constraints and limitations and resource uh you know issues Ken is that person now Ken, Ken is that person now Ken was my deputy when I was in that position and once I left that position Ken acted for a while and then they then they split the position and so now there are two divisions there's a division of migratory bird management doing all the operational surveys and and that sort of thing and then um, there's a division of permits and regulations and uh, dr. Eric Kirshner um, is doing that aspect uh, of the you know public publishing all the EISs the regulations making sure the permit policies for you know every every migratory bird permit in the Fish and Wildlife Service is consistent has re- regulations and everything else so Ken's doing a slightly different job but you know many of the same components I'm sure that um, the other division is relying upon Ken's expertise and his knowledge um, after spending years as being my deputy to help guide that new division too yeah well thank you for all the service that you put into the migratory bird program over the years the same I extend to Ken and and Eric and everybody else that's uh, that's in that space well I guess you were saying Eric is over permits. Permits and regulations, yeah. yeah. So, but yes, thanks to all those folks and and the work that they continue to do. Looking back over your career, maybe these be a, a, a couple of fun questions here. What was one of the most challenging topics, issues that you had to work, work on? Boy, that's that is a hard, that is a hard, I've been sitting here thinking about it (laughs) since you, uh, you know. You knew it was coming. Uh, yeah, I did, and I've been trying to think. You know, I I'm, I touched on uh, on the aircraft issue and uh, operationalizing these new aircraft. Um, folks were used to um, operating the two hundred sixes in the in previous aircraft, but then standardizing the fleet and and. Um, making sure that it was um, they were functioning and collecting the information was certainly a challenge. I guess the biggest challenge was is 
uh, it's hard to to, um, put words around, but it was maintaining the uh, identity um, and the uh, reputation of the division um, at all levels. You know, there was challenges from, certainly challenges from flyaways, from sportsmen, you know, gee, are the, is AHM working? Do we have fewer ducks and everything else? Most people don't know what they are talking about. All the way to folks in the administration, you know, pushing for development of a regulation and saying there's no way that, you know, the, um, that the migratory bird program can step this up. But, you know, when push came to shove, people would work extra hours. Uh, uh, folks folks that were working on on duck regulations, um, you know, and I'm particularly I'm thinking of folks like Scott Boomer, um, some of the others, Kathy Fleming, some of the other staff, come up with new and innovative ways to analyze data um, and help inform decisions that they would have never thought that they were going to be working on anyway. But when we start thinking about, okay, how do we deal with overabundant um, cormorants or black vultures, um, you know, it's essentially a harvest management decision. Um, uh, and that could extend on into bald eagles, um, you know, golden eagles. There's lots of things. So there are lots of lots of challenges on maintaining the program that I um, have invested my life in and, and that I love dearly is, is the Migratory Bird Program and making sure that they were in, in a better place when I left than when I inherited. And I inherited in a great place from, a, you know, Dr. Uh, Robert Bloom, Bob Bloom. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to make sure I keep kept that legacy going. And just for people that may be wondering, a, a little bit of a separation here to help people understand some of the structure in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the, the group that, that deals with like endangered species, that's not under, that's not migratory bird management. No. That's that's ecological services, right? And then there's also the National Wildlife Refuge System. That's a different uh, different division. Um, and so those, I mean, that, that would be like why you didn't name some endangered species as your greatest challenge, the one that you got <laughs> beaten up about, right? Well, I mean, we did, when I was working in Portland, we did um, delist the Aleutian Canada goose mm, and, and came up, had to develop a management plan and figure out how we were going to manage the species that went from the endangered species list to, to the harvestable species list in, um, in basically a very short period of time. So in that situation, it transitioned from primary authority under the under ecological services over to the Division of Migratory Bird Management. That's correct. Uh, okay, I kind of figured that was the way it worked, but I wasn't. It worked, but I wasn't entirely sure. And so then, kind of on that, this I think will be our last question. Um, but it speaks to like accomplishment and things that you look back on most fondly. And your what are you most proud of? Your 35-plus year career of public service centered around management of migratory birds. What are you most proud of? What, what has been one of your, what is one of your favorite memories or proudest moments and all that? The people that I brought in, the people that I hired, the, you know, the young young person that you took a a, a risk on, uh, or uh, you know, I I hired at least one of your classmates into this the service right after completion of his PhD, and and um, there's. The, my legacy is the people that I brought to the program. Um, I'm not the best and the brightest, so I, but I hired the best and the brightest that I could at the time. And uh, what they brought to the program and what will leave um, is much greater than anything that I would have personally accomplished for the program. So uh, I I think of the team as as being my my legacy, my uh, my account, my greatest accomplishment, not anything that I did individually. 
that's a great place to leave it. Brad, thank you for taking some additional time here with us this morning. Thanks for sharing more of your story, for providing some advice to folks listening, maybe young in their in their life, maybe at the very start of their career, uh, thinking about a career in this. Hopefully, they're able to, to, to gain a few pieces of information that's going to be useful to them as well. Thank you for the service to the resource over the years and and all your staff as well that that you brought in and the staff that are there now and Ken and everyone else that's that's kind of represented by that profession and your career in it. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I didn't get a chance to talk about HIP, but I'll be back to talk about the uh, what we can about um, yeah, increasing Hunter's knowledge of HIP and the requirements at some other point. Yeah, that's right. You have been, you've been on a number of podcasts talking about the Harvest Information Program and, and we'll get you back to do another update on that. I know you're still working on that. We'll be eager to, to learn the latest, but thank you, Brad. It looked like I was twisting your arm. <laughs> it's all good. Appreciate it. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Brad Borton. We appreciate his time, appreciate his service to Migratory Bird Resources, waterfowl regulations over multiple decades. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does on these episodes. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for spending it with us. And we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.